Kia ora. Welcome to 168 Days of Magic. This is the podcast that invites you to empower your creative spirit and get stuck into a project that nourishes, nurtures and excites you. Each episode, we'll be looking at how mindfulness, productivity and creativity all come together to give you the power, stamina and resilience to bring something new into the world. My name's Jordan Harcourt Hughes, and I'm an artist living on New Zealand's stunning Kapiti Coast, which is just an hour north of Wellington. I'll be your host and creative champion on this journey, and I'll also be introducing you to some other wonderful people along the way, including some of our other local artists, wellbeing practitioners, and life coaches to help us on our journey. Well, welcome to episode two of the podcast. Today on the mindfulness front, we're going to be exploring why mindfulness is so helpful for a creative practice. My podcast chat is with life coach Vicky Evans, and we're going to be talking about things like befriending your inner critic and addressing any limiting beliefs that may be holding you back. And we're also going to be talking about how to create space in your life, both physical and mental, emotional and spiritual for creativity. So how do you allow space for a new creative piece of work to happen amidst the whole ensemble of everything else that's going on in your life? So let's get started. So today I wanted to explore mindfulness and share with you a little bit about my thoughts on why mindfulness is such a great complement to your creative practice. There's a lot of evidence to show how beneficial creativity is to our lives in general. So art helps us to find new ways to express ourselves, enjoy creative play and slow down into a more relaxed state. Uh, Creativity can have a great impact on our well-being and it's a foundational aspect of 168 Days of Magic. And the mindfulness component of the program takes it a step further, providing more opportunities to slow down, reduce fear, anxiety and stress, and to develop a reflective practice that can enable us to feel more grounded and self-assured in times of change and uncertainty. So what is mindfulness? Where did it come from? And why is it so powerful? Well, mindfulness is the ability to be fully present and aware of where we are, what we're doing, but without being overly reactive or overwhelmed by the present moment. So Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center suggests that mindfulness means maintaining a moment-by-moment awareness of our thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, and surrounding environment through a gentle, nurturing lens. So mindfulness has its roots in long-standing Eastern spiritual traditions, particularly Buddhist philosophy, and it also started to emerge into more general public awareness in the 1970s. So the work of John Kabat-Zinn was particularly influential. He developed the mindfulness-based stress reduction program out of the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and that kind of started to bring mindfulness to broader audiences. So how does mindfulness enhance our creativity? Well, research demonstrates that mindfulness can improve our ability to concentrate, to decrease our fear of being judged, and also enhances our ability to be open-minded. So these are key elements that lead into successful creative work. So it allows us to relax into a flow state, to be comfortable taking risks, and also being curious. So mindfulness and meditation also engage the mind in non-verbal ways, and I think this is key for me. Often in our day-to-day logical headspace, we're caught up in language. Language is one of the key ways we interact and engage with people and with the world around us. But language and linguistics can also limit us and put us into a limited framework of understanding the world. And meditation and mindfulness practices 
that are aimed at slowing us down actually step us out of that linguistic framework into a more intuitive and subconscious connection. And that really, for me, is where the creative sense really starts to come through. So it's really a pathway, a stepping stone process into dropping down into a deeper, slower state. And that's where we start to really access those deep creative roots that we all have in us. So really, that's just a starter for 10 on how mindfulness can be such a beneficial part of your creative practice. So over the coming episodes, I'll be sharing with you some of the things that I do from a mindfulness perspective, and you might like to try some of those as well. And you might just like to reflect on how they help you to deepen into a more productive and nourishing creative state. If you've already got some tips on how you use mindfulness to benefit creativity, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at hi there at jordanharcourthughes.com and then I can share those tips with our listeners as well. Just a reminder that the Capital Arts Trail is coming up in November. I'd love to see you here in the studio. You can find me in the Capital Arts Trail guide or find out more on my website, jordanharcourthughes.com. It would be great to see you on the trail. So my podcast chat is with life coach Vicky Evans. Vicky focuses on enabling confidence, productivity and success and her mission is to inspire, teach, motivate and encourage others to give their best every day. So Vicky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. You're a life coach and a self-confessed recovering perfectionist. What does that mean and how did you learn to befriend your inner critic? Well, let's start with the recovering perfectionist thing because that's actually, I still find it quite amusing, even though it used to be quite painful. Um, perfectionism is not about wanting everything to be perfect. It's a, it's a big misconception. If you're a perfectionist, you set unrealistically high standards for yourself and then you beat yourself up when you don't achieve them. So it's a different thing to thinking you're perfect or wanting to be perfect or anything like that. So I'm definitely in the recovering basket still. Um, and I think I think once you start doing work on yourself, you will always be in the recovering basket because if you have a tendency to be a little bit hard on yourself, as most of us do, then um, that's going to come up when something triggers you. Even if you've learned good roots around all sorts of things, there might be something else that comes up that triggers you that you weren't expecting. So we're always kind of recovering, just like we're always growing or expanding. The second part of that was befriending the inner critic, wasn't it? So Essentially, this is learning to be kind to yourself. So if your perfectionism and your inner critic live together, they are essentially a bundle of limiting beliefs and that pushy part of us that pushes us to achieve. Even when we're exhausted, yeah. it can still push yeah. us to achieve. And we we kind of, I certainly, during my professional career, because I had 20 years in the corporate world before I started doing running my own business, um, you can push yourself to achieve just about anything. And your inner critic loves that because it goes, come on, you can do it. You know, I don't care if you're tired. And we've all been there. So befriending the inner critic is actually learning to not only accept, but be kind to and uh, even love the parts of you that are pushy and unreasonable yeah. and can be hard work, all of that stuff. So my life changed when I started doing personal development for myself um, because I struggled with anxiety and depression for a long time, but just about the whole of my adult life. And even as a child, actually, um, I'd struggled with that. So I've, I've tried behavioral therapy. I've tried counseling. I've tried antidepressants. I've tried it all. The thing that worked the best for me was 
working on myself and learning to be kinder to myself was life-changing. There's an interesting angle on this, which I teach, which is uh, the Dalai Lama talks about your sacred friend being someone who your heart has to expand to accommodate. So he talks about the Chinese government being a sacred friend because his heart had to expand enormously in order to accommodate the atrocities that the Chinese government had done to his people. So you can think about this in the same sort of way. So for instance, an addiction can be a, a sacred friend. You can be your own sacred friend. If that pushy part of you is leading and driving, then you can actually become your own sacred friend where your inner critic is mean to you quite often and you just take it because that's what you're used to. Mm. So turning that around, befriending your inner critic, learning to be kinder to yourself actually changes everything, absolutely everything, because it all starts with you and your relationship with yourself. So what does that look like? Your inner critic is on you all the time and just demanding lots of different things. So this approach of enveloping it in kindness, is that something that then just turns the dial down or makes you stronger in terms of not letting it lead you down the garden path? Well, it's probably a mixture. The best way to describe it to start with would be that you catch yourself or you catch your inner critic snarling at you or pushing you when you actually are a bit resistant to that. Like, actually, I'd like to have a rest today or maybe go for a walk. (laughs) And she's going, come on, you said you'd do this. So it's, it's a mixture of that. So if you catch yourself saying something that you wouldn't say to someone else, that's how I term it to myself. In the beginning, when I was learning, I would say, you wouldn't say that to someone else. You wouldn't let someone speak to your daughter like that. So don't speak to yourself like that. It's training your mind to respond in a different manner. It's a great rule of thumb. Now, I've read some of your blog posts and I really was interested to read some of them, particularly around the topic of self-sabotage. I was wondering if you could give us some context around what that looks like and how you kind of help people through that. The root of self-sabotage is actually your limiting beliefs. So if you say to yourself, I'm going to step forward and try and do, let's just say I'm going to step forward and, and open up my own business or run a new course or something, and I've never done that before, your limiting beliefs will say, well, you can't do that. You've never done it before. Who do you think you are to put a course out there? Who's going to listen to you? And it'll say all of those things that actually might make you kind of, you know, like backpedal just a little bit. Oh, actually, right. I haven't ever done this before. Maybe I'm not as qualified as I thought I was. That's a terrible idea. What if people laugh at me? And all of those things, if they come up, you will in the end, could in the end, if you allow the self-sabotage to happen, you backpedal. So you write back where you started and you go, actually, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that at all. Maybe I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because that's much safer. So you stay in the comfort zone. But the, the thing is, whenever you reach beyond your comfort zone, whenever you're trying to grow or do anything braver or more profound or more insightful or more adventurous than you've done before, you're going to feel that bit of resistance because you're breaking through this imaginary wall of what you know. Yeah. So it's it's so interesting mm. that we've got these two parts of ourselves. So in one way that we've got the the imagination to be able to say, Oh, that could be amazing. And then we've got the other part of us that says, Oh, that that's not possible. So they're yeah. almost going against each other, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And when I when I first um I had my children really late in life. I had my son when I was forty and I had my daughter when I was forty two. So I'd had a long professional career. Um completely turned it on its head when I had children, (laughs) turned into a stay-home mom, which completely surprised me, Um, but was a wonderful experience, a growth experience as well. But 
when I first started thinking, what am I going to do next? I don't want to go back to doing what I did before. So I was yeah. a people manager. So I, I loved the professional development part of my role, yeah. which is why yeah. I started thinking about life coaching. And eventually yeah. I did train as a life coach. But to start with, I was like, wow, life coach, that'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it? You've had a like interesting and varied life. Like I've tried yeah. all sorts of things. I've had an interesting yeah. life, that's for sure. Yeah. And as I said, I've got the history of the anxiety and depression, which I've gone over. But part of me went, who would even listen to you? You know, who would pay you to listen to you? Come on, you've got to be kidding. So the self-sabotage would have jumped in and gone, no, you can't. And then the rational part of my mind went, where would you train? How much would it cost? How do you know you'd have a good provider to train with? All of that stuff will come in around the edges. And as you said, the little part of you that went, oh, wow, that's exciting. I could do that. She's got to be strong enough in that moment to go, I know all that and I hear you, but I'm going to walk forward anyway. Even just take tiny steps, you know, take some yeah. little action steps so that yeah. I know more, so that I can feel more reassured, so that then I can move forward with more confidence. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds yeah. great. So you think we can all get over our own self-sabotaging efforts? I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. But sometimes it takes a bit of training because otherwise life coaches wouldn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it was super easy, then yeah. there wouldn't be a need for people like me. Um, yeah. You can train yourself over time with repetition and encouragement and strategies that help you to move beyond your self-sabotage. But it, it wraps back around to being kinder to yourself and believing yeah. in yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and in terms of creative folk and creative practice, have you got any tips on how to move outside of your comfort zone and and kind of have a good go at it and, and not get not kind of end up circling back to where you were just because it's easier? Well, I think I'm actually a creative folk. Um, I, I trained in three-dimensional design a really long time ago and I did glass. Um, and then I got into um, working agency side and the customer development and the people management and all of that sort of stuff. So I kind of went sideways, but I still loved what I did. I think creative people are, are a lot like other people and I think yeah. <laughs> ultimately I think you have you have to do whatever you can to believe in yourself so let's just say you've always loved to paint and uh but you've never had an exhibition somebody loves your work someone who has a gallery loves your work and says I'd love you to do a, a little um opening and uh we can exhibit your stuff for you how do you feel about that and you go oh that sounds exciting and then the other part of you goes ah <laughs> God, no, I just do this for myself and it's fun and I love it, but I wouldn't put it out there and I certainly wouldn't put a price on it. Then it's about, um, this is an exercise that I do with people um, when I'm coaching them. So you think about all the successes that you've had. So think right back to when you were young. How many people have told you that you were creative? How many people have acknowledged and applauded the work that you've done? How many other people have said you should exhibit this and you've ignored them because you're a bit scared? Now, this is the fifth or sixth time someone said, you're really good. You should actually exhibit this work, you know, go live with it. Um, At that point, you know, if you remind yourself of all the times people have believed in you, even when you don't believe in yourself, actually, that helps. It helps your self-belief. So it helps you to move forward, even if even if there's a little part of you that's trying to backpedal and, you know, (laughs) squirm away from the exposure and therefore, you know, there's a bit of vulnerability involved in putting yourself out there, whatever you do for yourself, and nobody wants to fail. So it's managing your inner critic when it comes to the little voices that tell you why you shouldn't do it. But it's also remembering how good you are 
you know we're all amazing yeah as people as individuals we've all got unique talents we've all got our own way of putting our own stuff out there yeah so valuing valuing yourself and um taking a deep breath and and knowing that you could do it you can do it in your own time you know Mm. take little steps forward talk to the gallery owner, work out a timeline that's going to work for you to get all your stuff lined up and so that you can feel comfortable doing it, I think. Yeah, yeah. very mm. good. You've also written about um, how our struggles can help us. Um, have you got an approach for people to just kind of have a good take on moments of struggle and hardship and stress and failure and all those kind of things? How do you approach that positively? I think um when I, when I very first start people on a course, a course that I run called Dream Builder, we talk about your longings and your discontent. So your longings and your discontent are your growth signals. So there's struggle bound up in your longings and there's struggle bound up in your discontent, isn't there? So if you're thinking about what you want to do with your life to move yourself forward, your longings and your discontent are a good indicator. So your discontent is obviously what you don't want to move yeah. forward with. You don't want more yeah. of that. You want less of yeah. that. So what do you want instead? You want the opposite, yeah. actually. And your longings, it's, it's actually following your intuition rather than not. So your, your struggles, any resistance that you might feel, any struggle that you might feel, it's growth. You can't grow. Like if you, it just, even if you just think about a little apple pip, they're quite hard and shiny on the outside, aren't they? Like to get a little green shoot, a little soft green shoot out of that apple pip, it's got to grow and grow and grow. It's got to really stretch itself. It's the same for us, you know, however um, however good we are, when we decide we're going to grow and we're going to shoot, it takes a bit of pressure on the outside, I think, to, to push through and to, um, to move beyond that. And there's a lovely uh, analogy here about growth and bamboo. So if you if you have a bamboo plant and you look after it and you water it, the first year it grows about a centimeter and you look after it, you water it, second year it grows about a centimeter. That goes on. In the fourth year or the fifth year, it shoots up about 15 feet. If you're aiming to grow, you've got to put down your roots, haven't you? Yeah. You've got to get yeah. your roots nicely established. You've got to take lots and lots and lots of little steps so that you feel reassured that you're doing the right things and you're growing your foundations and you're stabilizing and you're kind of settling into to what you're doing. And you might grow your business. I've experienced this a little bit in the first year, a little bit in the second year, a little bit in the third year. This is the fourth year. My business has gone like bamboo. So, mm. It's a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, yeah. The, the struggle and the resistance that you feel are part of the growth. And if you don't push through them, you'll stay the same. You have to move through them. And sometimes that takes a truckload of patience. That's cool. Thank you. One final question for you, Vicky. What does the good life look like for you? I'm kind of living it, to be honest. I, I don't want to sound smug at all because like, I don't feel smug. I just feel happy. But I run my business around my kids. I'm a single parent and therefore... To be able to drop them off at school and pick them up at three o'clock and still do what I do during the day is awesome. I can walk up the hill to Marpuya and and get some nature, get a nature fix in between clients if I like, or I can go outside in the garden and talk to the cat for a bit. You know, it's lovely. I get my exercise through yoga and Pilates, which I teach, and I teach it to keep that level of fitness and uh, mental and physical wellness in my life it's scheduled in so I can't miss it I'm teaching other people and so uh yeah eating great 
looking after your body the best possible way you can, getting tons of sleep. Epsom salt baths are a lovely thing to do to keep your body in, in really good shape. And I think ultimately what was missing from my life when I was experiencing anxiety and depression, the thing that was missing for me was making a contribution. So if you're going to have a good life, this is just my personal view. For me, all that other stuff is great. You can be fit and healthy and happy and, you know, have harmonious relationships. And that's all really good. But doing something that you love and making a contribution whilst doing that is really important. So I make a contribution, obviously, during sessions, talking to people, helping them change their lives positively. But also I contribute 10% of everything that I generate as income to a charity of my choice or my client's choice. And that's a way oh, of contributing right. tangibly to the kind of the greater good, if you like. So so we contribute to the SPCA and we contribute to Women's Refuge and um, many, many other causes, UNICEF and, you know, whatever happens to be current at the time. And it might be a cause close to a client's heart if they've had an experience with or a parent maybe has had an experience with an illness, for instance. So so I love that. That makes a big difference. And the, the last part of it would be being kinder to yourself because you can't actually, even if you've got the trappings of everything else looking wonderful on the outside, if you're not kind to yourself, actually, you're not having the life, the best life that you could live. Very profound uh, and inspirational and probably a great place to end up on. Vicky. thank you very much. My pleasure. Great to meet you. You too. Well, I hope you've been nourished and inspired by my chat with Vicky Evans today. If you'd like to find out about her life coaching offerings, you can visit her at VickiEvans.com. So in our section on creativity today, I wanted to talk about how you can make space for creativity. So if you are already someone who's a practicing artist, then you'll be well experienced at this. If you're just starting out, it may be something that you want to think through. And this comes down to the fact that to do something new, you have to create space for it. And doing that in today's world where we already have such jam-packed schedules can be quite challenging. So one of the things, if you're a practicing artist, that you will know is that it's not just about having the space, but it's about having the time to turn up and, and just do work and do that regularly. That requires more than just a physical space. It requires a mental space as well and a space in your life to be able to give time to this thing. So if you're starting out on a six-month journey, you've got a creative project in mind or you've started something and you really want to spend the next six months finishing it, getting it across the line and achieving your goals, it really is about making some decisions about how you're going to create space. One of the things that you'll think about when you're deciding what kind of creative challenge you're setting for yourself is thinking about what kind of space have you got, uh, what can you make, what will challenge you and what will be completely impossible. So let's start with physical spaces. Physical spaces are essentially a requirement for creative work because to me, particularly with intuitive creative work, you have to be able to drift off from the everyday. You need to find a way to not be distracted, not be stimulated by the world around you, but to turn inwards. And that turning inwards to find your inner voice, your own creative voice and your creative sensibilities requires a little bit of quiet and less stimulation from the outside world. So you can dial up the internal and dial up your own voice and learn to listen again to, to your intuition, to what's going on inside, to your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own insights, your own wisdom. Now, that's a complete turnaround for a lot of us because 
today's world thrives on our attention. So a lot of the things that we do every day are based and are informed by behavioural insights about how to keep our attention. Things like social media are a really good example. Those apps are based on really in-depth knowledge of what we seek and what we want as humans and to reward us for giving our attention to those apps, even if it's not always in our best interest. So it can be a real shift and and really can be quite challenging to wrench ourselves away from the habits of being uh, distracted and giving our attention to these things just because they're there, just because they're the loudest and they work very, very hard to, to grab our attention. So part of creative practice is learning how to dial those things down, shutting off social, turning off the TV uh, and entering into the void, the void of quiet, uh, you know, space to be able to find yourself again and not just be what the world wants you to be but find your own uh, reason for being so creative space might be a room in your house that you section off to be creative it might be a desk that you clean up and and take over depends of course on what creative project that you're doing so if you're doing a writing project that desk might be perfect if you're starting to do a visual arts project you might need some space on the floor or some space in the garage you might hire a studio space you might rent out a space that you can share with a few other people that just gives you that extra bit of uh, space a few times a week so depending on the scale of your creative project the spatial requirements will be different but have a think about it because It's part of, um, I think, setting an intention to do the work. Creating the space follows that intention and it is aligned with intending to do the work. So if you intend to do the work, you must create a space in which it it will happen. And that is a great way to support and reinforce that intention because you're following through. You've made a decision of something that you want to do and achieve and now you're taking the first steps to to get there. So creating a physical space and protecting it and making it your own for six months is a really, really great first step. I understand that sometimes this can be hard and sometimes you might really, really struggle to find a space that you can claim. You might have a really small space that you live in. You might have kids and and really don't have anywhere um, that you can claim for yourself. Um, But I'd recommend that even if you can just find a, a, a small space, a space to Um, have your art supplies or to have your journals or your writing notes that's a really good first step the second thing to think about is mental space so again it's not just physical space but it's the space to be able to think to slow down and give your energy to this creative idea so that requires us to have the reserves of mental energy and thinking to be able to really kind of put your whole head, heart, mind and soul into this thing. And that's really hard to do if you're doing a thousand other things. So again, this comes down to making some decisions. So um, I always say to people, when you start on a creative piece of work, you may have to give something up. So you may have to give something up for just a little while. Since this is a six-month project, you may have to just give something up for six months. So if you do sport on the weekend, you might decide that actually one of those things is going to go and you're going to give uh, that time to this. And that's going to give you some physical energy, some mental energy, uh, and help you along your way to delivering on this idea that you've you've hatched. Um, it's also good to remember that space, physical and mental space, doesn't have to be locked in. It doesn't have to be the same place all the time. So 
So one of the things that I have done throughout my career, throughout my creative endeavours, is rent a space. Now, renting spaces can be done in several different ways. One of my longest running traditions has been to rent a table over coffee in the morning. So I buy a couple of coffees, maybe some breakfast, and that space becomes my creative desk for an hour or so. And it's the best part of the day for me. I can watch the world go by. I can think. I can doodle. I can draw. I can plan. I can you know, reflect on what I've done and what I need to do next. And that table can be anywhere. That's where you'll usually find me, anywhere on the Kapiti Coast uh, between 7 and 8 in the morning. I'll be at any one of 100 different cafes, uh, enjoying my coffee, looking out on the beautiful horizon and thinking about my creative work. So that's a great way to rent a small place for a small amount of time. Over the years, I've also rented office spaces, studio spaces, and there's lots of different ways that you can do that these days. So even if it's just for a week or a month or even a long weekend, if you want to give yourself a long weekend, you can hire places by the hour, by the day, by the week. That's a wonderful gift to yourself, even if it's not sustainable over a long time, just to get you going or to give you a break or to just have a fun weekend of thinking and ideating Things like a writer's retreat or a creative retreat, they're wonderful ways to contribute the energy that you need to deliver a creative project. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Next time we'll be talking about how to select your support team as you get moving with the creative project. My podcast chat is with neurotherapist Corinne Allen. We're talking about art therapy and colour diagnostics. And I'll be sharing a little bit about the creative project that I'll be working on as we make our way through this podcast series. And just a reminder that if you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave a review. That'll help other people find it and enjoy it as well. Thanks and see you next time. Music.